What is going on, everybody, and welcome into a new episode of Burke's Beat. I'm Danny Burke, your host, and as always, you can follow along on Twitter at DannyBurke5. And remember, you can still catch content being pushed out continuously on the website, BurkeSpeed.com, doing articles revolving around hockey, college basketball, and eventually we'll get more into the NBA once the NFL season fully dwindles down. We're getting there, folks, and that's what we're going to talk about naturally on this episode is a preview for the conference championship games. We'll also do a recap from our bets from the divisional round and a game-by-game basis. And I do actually have a handful of bets. Well, maybe not a handful, but I got a few bets as we head into the conference championship weekend that I've already locked in. We've kind of stayed away from the props during the postseason, but I did make two bets in terms of the props and then one play in terms of a side. So make sure you listen through the whole episode and I'll be sure to dish those out. And then later as well, and again, this may be more for the Chicago sports fans, but as you all probably very well know, I did grow up a diehard Chicago sports fan, currently reside in the Chicagoland area, and I'm going to share my two cents finally about, well, maybe not finally, I know I've definitely tweeted about it tons and have talked to people about it, but at least here on the podcast, kind of give my whole thoughts on not only the Justin Fields, Caleb Williams situation, but with the recent news breaking, my thoughts on the Bears hiring Shane Waldron as their new offensive coordinator, taking Waldron from the Seahawks where he was the OC for the past three seasons, now bringing him to Chicago. What does that mean for the Bears? What does that mean for the quarterback conversation? And just overall thoughts on Waldron and how he can impact this team. So I'll be sure to dive into that later in the podcast. But let's get into it. A recap of the NFL Divisional Round Weekend. We went 1-1 one one with our bets, went down a little bit, minus 0.15 units, brings us to 43-29-1, still up, plus 11.27 units on the year. We cashed in with the seven-point teaser, the Niners down to 2.5, and the Lions down to plus a half at minus 127. Remember, we got that cheap in price at Bet Rivers, and that bet did come through. And, well... Uh, <laughs> 49ers certainly made a sweat. The Lions gave us a pretty comfortable victory, but uh, San Francisco definitely made us work for it. And then the other play we had were the Bills minus two in the hook at minus 115 against the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I'll get into that more in just a second, but uh, yeah, that was that was a tough one. And all you can do really is, yes, you can complain about the things the Bills did or didn't do, but really you got to tip your cap to the GOAT, Patrick Mahomes, getting the job done once again, especially in a year where we've seen their offense be dreadful, so to speak, from time to time. And they pulled through when they needed, and now they get a chance to go back to the Super Bowl once again. So yeah, that was something else. But one and one. Let's hope we get back into the W column as we proceed through the championship weekend. But like I said, let's get into that brief recap from the divisional round, looking at each and every game, because I think it's interesting to do it, and I think it is important to be cognizant of that, and it helps aid our handicap going forward. No, we don't want to have recency bias, but when you're narrowed down to as little amount of teams as we have right now, and in these high-pressured games, it's important to understand it. And you'll understand why when I rifle through some of these stats. Let's begin with the first game of the Divisional Round weekend. Started Saturday evening. Gave Ravens backers a little bit of fright in the first half. It was 10-10. to The Texans were holding their own. 
but then it was all Baltimore in half number two, outscoring Houston 24 to nothing. Props to the Texans for getting this far, but it was time for them to fall short. And look, hand up, at the beginning of the week, when this line was nine and a half, my initial thoughts were, that seems like too many points. And it leaves the back door open for a prolific passer in C.J. Stroud, who can make any insane result happen on one given throw. But if you listen to the second and later episode of the week where I had Dan Leach on, I strayed away from that conviction. And the reason being, aside from listening to other people, getting their analysis, kind of open, opening my eyes to other avenues, the biggest thing was the weather and that there were going to be 20 to 30 mile per hour wind gusts. Well, that's nowhere going to benefit a team like the Houston Texans who solely rely on their passing game and really struggled to run the ball against a formidable defense in Baltimore. Whereas on the other hand, Baltimore, one of the best running offenses against the Houston Texans defense that is eh, pretty below average. So those conditions worked perfectly for Baltimore and for a young overachieving team in Houston. It's not surprising they came up short and ended up getting blown out 34 to 10. It was technically a blowout, right? If you lose by 24, it's it's borderline right there, even though the first half didn't lead you to believe that. But look, the Ravens' defense, as we know, is legit. They held Stroud to 19 completions on 33 attempts, just 175 passing yards, didn't allow him a passing touchdown, also didn't force an interception. Lamar Jackson went 16 of 22, a buck 52 in the air, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. He also tagged along 11 rush attempts for 100 rushing yards. I want to talk about his rushing efforts against the Chiefs in a bit because that's where one of our props is going to revolve around. But all right, speaking of these discrepancies, look at this. The Ravens had 22 first downs compared to the Texans' 10. The Ravens ran 67 plays offensively, the Texans just 47. The Ravens totaled 352 total yards, 5.3 yards per play. Texans just 213 total yards, averaged 4.5 yards per play. Ravens, we talk about the rushing offense. My friends, they put up 229 compared to the Texans' 38. You know, I mentioned the under-rushing yards for Singletary. It might have been here on the podcast or another show. I didn't have, you know, the cojones to actually bet it, so I can't pat myself on the back. But it's just funny when you have one of those things where you think about, hey, it's something I'll consider. You don't do it, and you would have won it by a country mile. But, look, that Ravens run defense really stepped up. And more importantly, it's just when you're trailing by so much, after not getting that going in the first place, then teams tend to abandon it. And you have to at some point. And that's what the Texans had to do in half number two. Another big difference here. Look at the penalties. The Ravens, very disciplined, only had three. The Texans had 11. And finally, Baltimore controlled the time of possession for 37 minutes and 35 seconds. The Texans had it for 22 minutes and 25 seconds. That's the difference between an experienced, veteran, dominant squad and a younger, inexperienced team that was playing with a little bit of house money. And look, again, I'm not taking away anything from what Houston accomplished. They should be elated from what they witnessed from that organization this year. But their time was up. They'll be back next year to some extent, but it's tough when you're going up against a powerhouse in those conditions on the road and Lamar Jackson, the future league MVP. 
All right, 49ers and the Packers, the one we were big time sweating out. San Fran comes back and wins 24 to 21. Look, say what you want about Purdy. Say what you want about the 49ers effort in that game. It was one of their sloppiest efforts, yet they still won the game. They actually produced one of the worst outings from Jordan Love in quite some time. Now, I realize Jordan Love played his butt off, and he made big throws when it mattered. But he went 21-34, was held to 194 passing yards. Yes, he threw two touchdowns, but he also had the two interceptions. He had a QBR of 44.6 and a rating of 72.4. Mind you, Brock Purdy had a 61.9 QBR and an 86.7 rating. And everybody's trash from Purdy this week. Purdy was not good in that game, but he was great when it mattered. And that was that final drive. It's evident that he struggles in these rainy conditions. The other times we've seen him immensely struggle is when the game featured similar conditions. So clearly that's an issue for him. And you saw him trying to wipe his hand and he had some lame duck throws. Look, yes, he does need to be held accountable for the times that he did struggle. But again, you can naysay him all you want. You can give him all this grief, but he has now gone to back-to-back conference championship games. He went 23-39, 252 passing yards, one touchdown, no interceptions. Yes, he had help from who could be considered the MVP, Christian McCaffrey, who had 17 carries, 98 rushing yards, and two touchdowns. But folks, Purdy was the man when it counted, and the defense made some big stops late. They didn't look good in a lot of instances, but this is what championship teams do. They perform well and they execute when they're at their lowest, when the necessity is at the absolute highest. So just because the 49ers won in a very sloppy manner doesn't take away from my initial thoughts with this team that I had heading into the postseason. In fact, you would have hoped that it would have kind of cheapened the line against the Lions and maybe you got something better, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So that should tell you still what the market perceives about this team. All right, let's move on to Sunday. The Lions beat the Bucs 31-23. Mayfield, 26 of 41, 349 passing yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions, 349 passing yards. What can Brock Purdy do against his team in better weather conditions? More on that later. Mike Evans had eight receptions, 147 receiving yards, and one touchdown. Jared Goff with a great game, again. He went 30 of 43, 287 in the air. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. Jameer Gibbs, nine carries, 74 rushing yards. He also had four receptions for 40 yards, and he had that one rushing touchdown, too. Gibbs was an absolute beast. I considered him for a prop this week, but... More than likely going to stay away again. I'll explain that in a bit. How about the Bucks going three for three in the red zone? Lions went three of four. Not sure that's going to do well for Detroit on the road where they typically struggle against the best offense in the league in San Francisco. Now, the Bucks also averaged 6.8 yards per play. The Lions averaged five and a half. The big difference, no turnovers committed by the Lions. There were two from Tampa Bay, that late one from Baker, being numero dos, of course. But how about the Bucks? They held their own, and yeah, they came close to covering, but obviously fell short. But again, another team that overachieved and may have a lot to look forward to down the road. We'll see what they do in the offseason. 
But looking at this game should give you an indication of what San Francisco should, should be able to do offensively. And then finally, the Chiefs beat the Bills 27-24. Mahomes, 17-23, 215 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Josh Allen, 26 of 39, 186 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions, 12 carries for 72 yards and two rushing touchdowns. Again, remember that for the Lamar props. Pacheco had a great game, 15 carries, 97 rushing yards, one rushing touchdown. James Cook, 18 carries, 61 rushing yards. Thoughts and prayers if you were somebody involved in the James Cook rushing props when he had 67 and then only had negative carries in the second half to take it under the rushing yards prop. That is a killer. Very, very bad. So, uh, yes, thoughts out to you. That is brutality. And look, we can go back and forth about this game. Again, like I said earlier, you got to give credit to this Chiefs team despite, and relatively speaking, all the adversity they dealt with. This is the benefit of having who may go down as the greatest quarterback of all time. It's remarkable. And we can complain about what the Bills did or didn't do, meaning the fake punt that everybody kind of saw coming, and you did it with DeMar Hamlin, and it just felt so so forced and so unnatural and just really, really dumb at the time. Even if they got it, it's just like, really? Really? And then especially after you're like, look, if you're going to do some idiotic play like that, that the Chiefs were clearly ready for, although what, I saw someone say they only had 10 people on the field. I don't know what happened, but the point is, you would have had a better shot with just leaving Josh Allen out there. And they get the benefit from the fumble in the end zone. And they still couldn't capitalize, but then the defense did hold them. And then Stefan Diggs misses what was arguably the best thrown ball I have seen all season. Incredible throw. He threw it so high, it went like above the TV screen to where it was in the air for so long. And again, so high, I was like, there's no way a receiver is going to be down there. He's going to sail this 30 yards over the closest receiver. It was in his bread basket. And the guy who bitches the most about his quarterback and is an absolute diva can't come up big. And he almost fumbled and turned the ball over on the first play of the game, too. Keep your mouth shut going forward, Diggs. You had a chance to get into the end zone for your team and come up big in a monster spot. And you failed to do so. And that's why, rightfully so, you are getting ripped on Twitter. And actually, Sherfield dropped a big one earlier, too. Uh, that's This one was tougher, though. It, it was a good effort. He dove and, you know, it hit the ground. But, look, Josh Allen played his ass off. Yes, he missed Diggs coming across on that first down where Allen eventually threw it in the end zone and it was short. But I don't hate the decision to go for the touchdown there. They still had a play after that. So I'm not really going to hang everything on that one play like a lot of people are. And, yeah, Tyler Bass misses the kick. But, folks, let's be honest. As someone who backed the Bills... One, I didn't have the most confidence in him hitting it in the first place. Very nerve-wracking situation and with, you know, the wind out there. And more importantly and realistically, you make that kick, you tie with the Chiefs. They had over a minute. Are you kidding me? It took 13 seconds for this team to do it against you. And you were going to give them over 90 seconds? Come on. The Chiefs were going to get into field goal range and presumably win that game regardless. 
It stinks. It sucks. He didn't even get the chance. As a Bears fan, trust me, I know about the kicking woes. The bigger issues reside in the inability to stop Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, let them get big play after big play after big play with a defensive head coach. And in a year where their offense has been one of the worst since they've had Patrick Mahomes, it might be the worst since he's been their starting quarterback. And that Stefan Diggs, your top receiver, couldn't come up for you. And honestly, some of their play calling got predictable in the second half when they kept running it on first down and they would get stuffed and then second and long situation. They should have done a little bit more play action with Josh Allen in my mind. They were really trying to preserve him until eventually they were letting him sling it and that's how he got 39 attempts. But I thought he was playing a great game. He missed a couple throws late. He also had beautiful dimes that got dropped. Takeaway is major props to the Chiefs for overcoming it. Stefan Diggs blew it for you. Josh Allen is still a dog. People are going to have the narrative switch because he hasn't won against a big quarterback in the playoffs. I think you got to switch some things up in Buffalo. Will they? Probably not because that's what happens a lot. But fun game nonetheless. And now the Chiefs, as we move on to these championship games, now the Chiefs get to take on the Baltimore Ravens on the road. Baltimore opened up in Las Vegas at the Superbook and Circa, I believe, too, at three and a half with even money to lay on the Ravens minus three in the hook. The total opened at 45 in the hook. Now, if we look, I'm just right now in the state of Illinois, three and a halfs are painted across the board, it appears. Now, if you want to look in Las Vegas, a little bit bigger palette to choose from, three and a half is still your consensus number. However, there are a couple threes out there. But in order to lay the three, you're laying about minus 120. But again, a majority of these outlets have three in the hook. And then in terms of the total, you've also seen some movement. 44 and a half, and a lone 44 at Circa actually, but 44 and a half is what's painted. So the under has gotten some love. And in terms of the side, and nothing too crazy. I know DraftKings opened it at three, and now they've moved up to three and a half as well. All right, so let's look into this game now, and let's look at these stats first and foremost. The defense. A main reason why Kansas City has been able to be in the spot they are or has been able to survive with their inept offense throughout the regular season is because their defense has been outstanding. And this is a large part of why I like them and why we took them against Miami, among other reasons. Now, the Chiefs, Remember, this season, 6th in EPA, 4th in success rate defensively, 3rd in dropback EPA, 2nd in dropback success rate. Against the run, not as good, which is important, going against a Ravens offense that thrives in the running game. Chiefs, 28th in rush EPA, 15th in rush success rate. Now, if you recall my handicap for Buffalo and Kansas City, Yes, I acknowledge that Kansas City had the better defense, but that Buffalo still had a really strong one, but Kansas City had a little bit better one. But figured that because the Chiefs' offense was not that good and the Bills were a better offense in a lot of these metrics, that that would be the difference. Okay, well, clearly that didn't pan out. Had a chance, but didn't. But now you're going up against arguably a better offense, at least for sure in the running game, which is the weakest part of the Chiefs' defense. So that should be a big benefit for the Ravens. And then defensively, Baltimore is a better defense than Kansas City. 
the Ravens second in defensive EPA, sixth in success rate, second in dropback EPA, fourth in dropback success rate, 16th in rush EPA, 22nd in rush success rate. DVOA has Baltimore as the number one overall defense, number one against the pass, number seven against the run. DVOA has the Chiefs seventh overall, fifth against the pass, and 27th against the run. DVOA for offense has Baltimore fourth overall, first in the running game, fifth in the passing game. DVOA offense for KC, eighth overall, eighth in pass, 17th in the run. EPA, Baltimore six, Chiefs 11th. Success rate, Baltimore fourth, Kansas City 12th. Dropback EPA, dropback success rate. Ravens rank six in both, 12th and eighth respectively for the Chiefs. Rush EPA, rush success rate, Baltimore third, 18th and 26th respectively for their upcoming opponent, the Kansas City Chiefs. Advantages all over the place in terms of on paper for this Ravens team. Now, aside from that, what other advantages? How about the shorter time to prepare? Kansas City played on Sunday, then you're going to Sunday. All right, that's a normal week, sure. But Baltimore gets that extra day having played on Saturday after coming off the bye week too. It may seem minuscule, but those things do matter. And I was listening to Adam Chernoff's podcast, his Simple Handicap. It's a great listen. He's a great follow, does awesome content. And he made a really, really good point. Now, these are one of those intangibles, right? After the game, Kansas City beating Buffalo, it seemed like such a milestone for them to do that. Based on their press conferences and based on what their expectations were, how we perceived them, it just seemed like a monumental win for them to go on the road, beat Buffalo, and find themselves in another championship game with the offense that we had seen from them this year. So rightfully so, they should be elated, as every team should be. But when you look at what Baltimore did in their win versus Casey and Buffalo, it was like a more comfortable win because of that second half and more like, yeah, that was business. Now we're ready to move on. With Kansas City, it was like that was almost a mountaintop type of feeling. Again, you Kind of try to play psychiatrist here, but a lot of times you see that. And I'm not saying they celebrated like they won the Super Bowl. This team's done it multiple times. They know how to prepare, but it takes a lot out of you mentally and physically. And you factor that in with the shorter week. And more importantly, going up against a juggernaut in Baltimore who's better than you in a lot of offensive categories, in pretty much every defensive category, and has a quarterback who's a dual threat, which teams outside of his division always struggle with always in the weaker part of the Chiefs defense again the running defense the Ravens best part of their offense the running game it sets up very nicely for the Ravens people are going to fall in love with Kansas City and look I was on the wrong side obviously the underdog role they came through people are going to see them as an underdog over the key number of three again and love that because all these trends that Mahomes in the underdog role will show up and I get it it's been viable I'm not denying that but it's a different matchup this time around. And I'm not in love with the idea of going over three in the hook. And I'm not in love with the idea of laying three at minus 120. I'm going with the money line here. I get it's chalky. You can scold me for it. I want the security because it's at three or above. 
and I still have enough confidence in the Ravens to lay it. And at DraftKings, minus 170 was the cheapest number I saw. I wouldn't play it over minus 175. Sharper books, Circa, minus 190. Superbook, minus 180. I'm risking 1.70 units to win one on the Baltimore Ravens to win this game outright. Now, what can the Chiefs do defensively to stop Lamar? That's a big question here, and that's what I think they'll fail to do in a short span of time. And again, a team they haven't seen this year and don't see that often. Again, we see those teams outside of the division struggle with Lamar. And remember what I referenced earlier? Josh Allen, 12 carries, 72 yards, two rushing touchdowns. And when I was handicapping last week, I said, well, why I think the Bills will have an advantage offensively, they have more weapons than the Chiefs. Kincaid, Knox, Diggs, Shakir will bring the secondary downfield, open up the running lanes for Allen, and he'll thrive in that regard. And he did, right? He did. Obviously, it wasn't enough to win, but he excelled in that category of the rushing yards. So then my interests are peaked with Lamar Jackson in his rushing yards. And I thought maybe they'd be somewhere around like 65 and a half to 70 and a half, probably closer to 70 and a half. And I see it's at 60 in the hook. And I'm looking at it, minus 114 at Fandle was the best number. And I'm looking at it and I think this is a great prop bet. And it's probably going to move up the further along the week progresses because of the reasons why Allen was able to do it. And just because Lamar is a primarily dual threat running uh, quarterback part of me who can kill you in that fashion in the first place. But looking more into it, I was kind of just looking over his stats this year, and I know every game's different, but he's only gone over 60 and a half in five out of 17 games. One of the games, he landed on 60. And then I was curious. I was like, all right, well, what are his rushing attempt numbers? So nine and a half is the prop bet, minus 135 to the over at DraftKings and ESPN bet. So Lamar's gone over nine and a half carries in eight out of 17 games, three more times than he's gone over 60 and a half rushing yards. And he's landed on nine carries in three of those games. He's never had less than 10 carries this season and has simultaneously eclipsed 60 and a half rushing yards. So if you believe like I do that he has a good chance of getting over 60 and a half, you should probably be on the side of he's going to get double-digit carries. And he's done that several more times than he's gotten the rushing yards. So I think it's a little bit more of a safety net to take the carries as opposed to the rushing yards potentially. Now, yes, he could have seven carries and they're all explosive and get over it and we lose. Of course that's a possibility. But now if we do this instead, we're paying more juice, sure, but we don't have to worry about negative rushing yards. We don't have to worry about not making the most of each rushing attempt, just getting that attempt out there, which because of how Kansas City's defense is played, because of how Baltimore's offense is conducted, it should occur frequently. So not only am I playing the money line for the Ravens, I'm also backing Lamar Jackson over 9.5 carries at minus 135, risking 1.35 units to win one. So I got a pair of plays for the AFC Championship game. Let's hope Baltimore and Lamar Jackson come through, baby. We're big Ravens fans this week. Big Ravens fans. As for the NFC Championship game, 5.30 p.m. is when they say it's going to start. It'll be later than that. San Francisco hosting once again 
opened as a seven-point favorite. Total opened at 52. Total has dropped to 51. In terms of the spread for this game, we see sevens, a majority across the board, minus 105 if you're laying it. I see it a couple books, minus 110s. Uh, plus seven, minus one fifteen available out there too. Circa now down to six and a half. Circa minus six and a half. If you want to lay it with San Fran, minus one fifteen. If you want to take six in the hook, it is minus one oh five. So a little bit of Detroit action coming in for this one. Look, I mentioned, I mean, the Niners still the best offense at the end of the year. Remember, they were first in EPA, success rate, all the other categories, DVOA. Has them number one in all the offensive categories, except they're number two in rushing offense behind Baltimore. The Lions offensively, fifth overall in DVOA, seventh with the passing effort, fourth in the running game. The Lions, eighth in EPA, seventh in success rate, seventh in dropback EPA, fifth in dropback success rate, sixth in rush EPA, eighth in rush success rate. We know the Lions have a really good offense. They're fantastic at home. You're going on the road against a Niners team who does have a formidable defense and is probably going to have a big wake-up call from what the hell just transpired against Green Bay after their bye. San Fran, 10th in EPA defensively, 15th in success rate. Detroit, liability defensively. We've known this. 21st in EPA on that side of the ball, 18th in success rate, 25th in dropback EPA and dropback success rate. That's their weakness, the passing game. San Francisco's weakness is defending the run. 26th in rush EPA, 24th in rush success rate. They're 15th in DVOA run defense. Detroit, 16th in DVOA pass defense. The Lions limit opponents to just 3.8 yards per rush this season. San Fran at about 4.3. Not terrible, but if you're Detroit, you probably want to keep the ball out of the hands of Brock Purdy in this number one offense. You want to control time of possession play your game, and let Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery, that dual-headed threat, thrive on the road here if you can. Take the pressure off of Jared Goff. So that drew my interest to Jameer Gibbs over his rushing yards prop. 44.5 minus 117 at Bet Rivers is the best spot that I saw. Others were at like 46.5 minus 115. I haven't played it, but I don't mind it. I don't think I'm going to get there. It's the reason that I don't think I'm going to get there is because obviously I'm speculating the game plan, that that's how they should attack it. And even if they do, what if San Fran just really, really destroys this defense, gets to a big lead? Well, then the Lions will have to abandon the run and throw the ball. They are a pretty sizable underdog. So that is a legit possibility, as we know. So I think I'm going to stay away from it. And really quick, just want to throw these other numbers out there. This doesn't have to do with my prop, but red zone-wise, I thought this was pretty interesting. Lions, red zone defense, 65% is what they allow their opponents to execute at a clip of once they cross the 20. That ranked 29th. San Francisco red zone defensive efficiency ranked 12th at a clip of 53%. But offensively, Niners, number one red zone offense, 67.7%. Lions are right behind them at 66.2%. Just wanted to toss it out there. Points could probably be coming in frequently here. Hence why you see this total as high as 51. But all right, the prop that I am playing. Where can San Fran attack this Lions defense? It's got to be the secondary of Detroit. 25th in dropback EPA, 25th in dropback success rate. Baker Mayfield torched this secondary torched them 
349 passing yards, three touchdowns, yes, two interceptions, but was still able to pad those damn stats. The Lions allowed the most yards per completion this season, 11.6. They allowed 22.2 completions per game. It's gone up to 27 over their last three games. Lions completion percentage this year was at about 63.5%. Over the last three games, that has risen to 67%. His passing yards prop, 268.5 minus 113 to the over is the best spot I saw at Bet Rivers. He's gone over that in 8 out of 17 games this year. His pass attempts, 29.5 at Bet Rivers minus 114 to the over. He's gone over that 6 out of 17 times. But the bet that I made, is his pass completions prop, 20.5, minus 106 to the over at FanDuel. He's gone over that 7 out of 17 games. Brock Purdy hasn't been a quarterback who's consistently racking up the passing yards per se. But I think this is going to be a game that we see the Lions defense, who does better against a running attack, really try to take CMC out of that equation. That was a crucial part to them beating the Packers, and it's been the biggest impact of their offense all year. And clearly, we all saw Brock Purdy struggle when the pressure was on until the last drive. So if you're Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator for the Lions, how do you take Christian McCaffrey out of this situation and put the pressure on Brock Purdy? That's by making him throw, I would presume. And... As for the 49ers, you look at this Lions defense, not bad against the run, pretty damn good. You want to counter that. You got to realize that you may not have Debo. Try to work in all these guys some other way, knowing the weaker part of the Detroit defense is their secondary. Baker can torch it. Stafford torched it. Everybody's torched it. Purdy should be able to do the same. And a mastermind like Shanahan can figure that out. And because of what we've seen with his averages, it's a low completion number of 20 and a half. So let's look to take advantage of that, assuming that's where they're going to attack. So count me in for Brock Purdy over 20 and a half pass completions. We just need the short, precise throws. We don't need the deep bombs. While they're nice, we can take those shorter slants and let the scheme take its place. So that's why I'm not doing the passing yards. Don't want to worry about those deep balls, yards after catch. He may just be incredibly accurate and don't have to worry about the attempts as much. So let's go with the completions here. Why wouldn't you go after the secondary in Detroit? So that's what I got so far, folks. Brock Purdy over 20 and a half completions, risking 1.06 units to win one. Lamar Jackson over nine and a half rush attempts at minus 135, 1.35 units to win one. And then, yes, an expensive play here, but a confident one nonetheless. On the Ravens' money line, minus 170, 1.7 units to win one. That's what I got as of this moment for the conference championship weekend. By our next episode in a couple days, perhaps I'll have more. Let me know your thoughts on those and what you got rolling with or potentially will be betting for the upcoming weekend at Danny Burke 5 on Twitter. All right, now that we got some of that handicapping out of the way, let's move on to the portion of this episode where... I'll give you my two cents on the whole Bears, Caleb Williams, Justin Fields, Shane Waldron situation. So in case you missed it, basically the Bears are acquiring Shane Waldron for their offensive coordinator. 
Waldron spent the last three years as the OC for the Seattle Seahawks. In 2021, he was the OC for Russell Wilson. In 2022, the Pro Bowl year, resurrected Geno Smith. In 2023, this year, still at Geno Smith and a game or two, maybe just a one, right, with Drew Locke. He's 44 years old. And prior to joining Seattle, Waldron worked under Sean McVay for the Rams. He's a tight ends coach in 2017, then passing game coordinator, and then he went to the Seahawks in 2021. Now, Waldron, when you look back at the personnel and everything, he's shown to be, yes, very heavy in the mix in the running and passing game, but a little bit more leaning on the run attack. Again, you were still under Pete Carroll, defensive-minded guy, tad bit more conservative. Maybe that changes knowing he doesn't answer or have to answer to a guy like Pete Carroll and can really let free. And this depends who the quarterback of the Bears is going to be, certainly. I'm a little uh, I'm a little indifferent on this acquisition. Look, I don't think it was the most talented pool of offensive coordinators to choose from. The head coaching talent pool was a lot more appealing, as we very well know. The Bears said, nah, we're good with our guy who's blown all these leads, hasn't beat the Packers, you know, all these terrible things, whatever. It's... It is what it is at this point. But let's look at the numbers for Waldron. In 2021, the Seahawks offense, 14th in EPA, 20th in success rate, 18th in dropback EPA, 22nd in dropback success rate, 2nd in rush EPA, 13th rush success rate, ranked 20th in yards per game, 324 is what they average, ranked 16th in points per game, 23.2. All right, that was his first year, but it was also with Russell Wilson. All right, 2022, you resurrect Geno Smith. You end up with a 13th ranked EPA offense, 16th success rate, 11th in dropback EPA, 5th in dropback success rate, 19th in rush EPA, dead last in rush success rate, 13th in yards per game, 351 and a half, and top 10 being 9th in points per game at 23.9. Improvement, but nothing that moves the needle per se. Geno Smith getting to the Pro Bowl moves a needle, but just talking about those numbers. This year, had the Seahawks 10th in EPA, 10th in success rate, 10th in dropback EPA, 12th in dropback success rate, 14th in rush EPA, 15th in rush success rate. But get a load of this, 322.9 yards per game. Ranks him 21st, behind none other than his new team, the Chicago Bears, with the crappy offensive coordinator Luke Getze. And the Seahawks averaged 21.4 points per game, ranking 18th, and also just one spot ahead of this crap offense that was the Chicago Bears. In DVOA, 7th is what the offense ranked in 2021, 13th in 2022, 12th this past year. So, yeah, not great that your offense ranked uh, better in yards per game and barely worse in points per game as opposed to the team where your new offense coordinator is coming from. I get it. It's different players. It's different scheduling. I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there, playing a little bit of devil's advocate. But you look at these numbers, and yes, there was improvement pretty much in each year. And yes, he brought back Geno Smith from the dead and made him relevant in a pretty darn good quarterback, an above-average quarterback. Now, Geno did regress this year, but we're aware that he has his limitations. But again, when you, when you look at these numbers, it's not like we talk about moving the needle. It's not great. 
It's fine. It's above average. Does that mean you're getting an above average offensive coordinator? Maybe. Is above average better than Luke Getze? Yes, we know that. But is it what you need or what you want for the position that you're in? That's obviously not up for me to decide and up into the hands of people who know more about him in the situation than I do, than we all do. So it's going to be one of those things where you have to put faith in Ryan Poles in the process. Again, the offensive coordinator pool was not as appealing. I wouldn't have minded Cliff Kingsbury. I'm not saying he was my number one choice, but it made sense. As I tweeted about it, if you want more of an explanation... But we'll see what Waldron can do. It's, you know, you see Seahawks fans, nobody's saying they're going to miss him. But you also hear around the league how respected he is and what he's capable of being. So, again, it's a complete mixed bag. I'm just saying the numbers don't wow you. The Geno Smith thing is huge. But is that an anomaly or is that something we can expect him to do with other quarterbacks? That's what we'll have to wait and see. The big question, though, is does this give any indication of what's going to occur with Williams and or Fields? I don't really think so. You got some people clamoring on Twitter that, oh, this for sure means Fields staying. If he brought back Geno, that's what he's going to do to Fields. Why would Waldron, whose probably end goal is to be a head coach, why would he want a older quarterback that you really get realistically a year to work with for a sample size and have to get instant results as opposed to giving yourself a four-year window with Caleb Williams, who may and realistically has a much, much higher ceiling than Justin Fields. I don't think it tells us anything. I don't think it gives us more of an indication they're going with Williams, but I don't think it does that for Fields. I think it's the same thought process beforehand. And it's the thought process that I align with. And that is that the Bears are going to draft Caleb Williams as they should. Now, I have gone back and forth on this time and time again, like many of you Bears fans have. For some reason, heading into that Green Bay game, my mentality shifted on Justin Fields. I don't know what it was. I really don't. And then we saw the game play out to fruition, and Justin Fields just had a really bad game. Couldn't score one touchdown against a very poor defense in Green Bay. Now, before you start yelling at me and turning off the podcast, look, I have been the biggest advocate for getting rid of Getsy since day one. Even when people adored him two years ago, and for whatever reason were afraid he was going to leave for a head coaching job, I can't even believe that. I was still against him because he wasn't calling plays that were suited for Fields. Justin Fields absolutely got shafted. He got screwed. He was set up terribly. Nobody in Chicago denies that. But the great ones are able to overcome it to some degree or would at least be able to score a touchdown against a Packers defense that is bottom tier. I get it. Getsy was terrible. I know he was the worst. And I love Fields. Great guy. Amazing leader. We'll probably thrive elsewhere and we'll root for it. We'll be happy. But you can't pass up on Caleb Williams with what the scouts are saying about him, with what we've seen from him, how sought out after he's going to be. I get the hole you will receive, but think about it from Ryan Pohl's situation. He has hitched his wagon to Eberflus. If you don't select Caleb Williams and you stick with Fields, if Fields doesn't pan out or just stays average and Williams goes off elsewhere, you are good as gone. And you will never 
be a GM in the National Football League again if you passed up on one of the best quarterbacks, if he turns out to that, right? But if you're Ryan Poles and you say, yeah, we're going to take Caleb Williams, who's one of the highest prospects coming out of college in however many years, maybe since Andrew Luck, people say. Whether or not he pans out, you still get four years of security with him. Four years of trial and error. And if he works out, great, you're a genius, awesome, great move. If he doesn't, well, guess what? He was one of the highest rated prospects since Andrew Luck or even further than that, right? So you have an excuse if you're having to apply for other jobs or vouch for yours currently as a GM of the Bears. And then you look at the contract situation for Fields, they get the franchise, all this. Look, they're getting Williams. They should get Williams. It's the right move. We love Fields as fans. We'll root for him. He got absolutely screwed. But he's proven where his ceiling is. Williams' ceiling could be limitless. We'll never know until we try it. And it's the right move to try it. Look at this past year. Teams that Justin Fields beat, their EPA rankings. Week 5 at Washington. They finished dead last in EPA. Week 7 versus Las Vegas. At the time, they ranked 27th. They did finish 9th. Had an easier schedule at the end. Antonio Pierce took over. But at the time, they ranked 27th. Carolina, week 10. They finished 26 in EPA. These are defensive EPA rankings for their opponent that Justin Fields beat. Again, week 12 at Minnesota, they finished 17th. Minnesota had a good defense at some points, but they only scored 12 points. And you won in a game-winning field goal, and it was against Josh Dobbs in his worst game. Week 14 versus the Lions. The Lions finished 21st in EPA defensively. Week 16 versus Arizona. At the time, they were dead last in EPA. Well, they finished second to last. And then week 17 versus Atlanta, solid defense, finished 12th. And that was his best game. And then you don't do anything against the Packers, a team you have to beat if you are the Bears. How much more do we need to see? Yes, with better coaching, Fields would have been better. That doesn't mean he is or will be better than Williams. It comes down to contracts, timing, job security, And all of that should lead you to believe in Caleb Williams will be, and again should be, the quarterback of the future for the Chicago Bears. So that's where I stand on that. And hopefully they add a receiver along the way, another offensive lineman, but a receiver in the top 10, right? But Williams is the future, folks. Get ready for it. All right. That's all I got for this episode. Longer one. Apologize for that. Fun one. Another episode later this week. Remember, we got two going each week as of this moment. And be sure to keep an eye out for all the other content that I'm producing over at BurksBeat.com. Articles with NHL, college basketball, NBA coming soon. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Always appreciate it. Helps me out. And like I say, helps you out. So you get that notification when the episodes are released as soon as possible. And then finally, on Twitter, at DannyBurke5. Thank you all for tuning in. Best of luck with your bets. We'll talk to you again in a couple days. Take care.